Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani. Welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a social scientist exploring inequality, energy poverty, energy justice, heating technology and fuels, and households energy use. She is a research fellow at the Center for Social Sciences at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences Center of Excellence. She holds a PhD in environmental sciences and policy from the Central European University and a master's degree in European studies from Europa College Hamburg, University of Hamburg. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Anna Stoyolovska. Our interviewer today is Ray Kochi. She is a planner and program director at Chandra Mardana, where she examines air quality from an urban neighborhood planning perspective to build safe and healthy spaces for children and their caregivers. She has a background in urban planning, politics, human rights and management. Welcome to the show, Anna and Ray. Thank you, Shazad, for introducing us. And hello, Anna. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Shahzad, for this opportunity. We could say that energy is part of almost everyday activity in our lives. So we need energy to survive, whether it's for cooking, heating, taking a shower, powering our electronic equipment that is part of our life almost inseparably. So in this way, energy poverty is a broad issue that covers a wide spectrum of our lives. Could you give us some insights maybe to understand energy poverty and how is it embedded in our existing system? I think exactly energy poverty is indeed a multidimensional phenomenon and it is embedded in the current uh, social political system. One of the most um, used definitions nowadays is that state of energy poverty is usually the unit defined household. It is when the household cannot satisfy its energy needs at home which means it either lives in a cold home or is unable to pay the energy bills. And uh, the main drivers from the literature that are causing energy poverty are low incomes, low energy efficiency, and uh, high energy prices. However, energy poverty is also a result of existing institutional and technological lock-ins. For example, it is widely spread in countries that have weak social welfare system, monopolistic and privatized energy supply, or for example, lack of developed gas or heating infrastructure. And in this whole story, energy poor households are also seen as unknowledgeable about energy use, and this is definitely not true. And the way they cope with uh, their material deprivation and the way they cope with energy poverty is also not acknowledged in potential policies and solutions. It is assumed that energy poverty can be fixed technologically, for example, through installing LED light bulbs, but their lived experience is much more complex. And exactly as you said, the current system tends to take away the agency of the vulnerable and propose some kind of a top-up technological solutions, which is actually a problem because it is human problem and deeply interdisciplinary, which needs to take an inspection of a much broader set of policies and disciplines. 
you kind of touched a bit on like which regions in the world are most vulnerable, let's say, and a few of the particularities of the socioeconomic context that makes them vulnerable in the sense of energy poverty. But maybe we could turn a bit to energy justice. So this is a new concept that has emerged in research recently. I'm in urban planning and I can say that I've been listening about this concept of energy justice and poverty just lately. Can you maybe share the differences of energy justice and energy poverty on what are your thoughts about energy justice and again, which regions are maybe more vulnerable in energy justice? Mm, thank you. Energy justice is not really new, but it's new in the sense of that is still work in progress concept so that there's attempts, including myself, of researchers to make it more applicable. And it starts more from environmental justice. So the roots are in kind of a Schlossberg view of environmental justice. And one of the most common understanding of energy justice is that it is a place where everyone has access to safe, modern, clean energy, and the burdens are shared between everyone. And there are three elements of it, distributive, recognition, and procedural justice. And distributive is about the spatial aspect. We definitely with very visible geographical variation. Recognition is about who is suffering from injustice, and it's more about the socio-demographic profile of the citizens. And procedural energy justice is about the policies and processes. And actually, when you asked about what is different than energy poverty, it is energy poverty is a form of energy injustice. So energy justice as a concept is much broader. And I tried in my work to apply or at least to improve the application of energy justice to energy poverty. And especially in the regard to procedural energy justice, I tried to define it that it is how formal institutions treat citizens in regard to their access to energy and how citizens are empowered or disempowered by that uh, relationship. And as you mentioned, yes, there's definitely geographical and socioeconomic variants of energy justice. For example, if we take Europe, we have more and less vulnerable regions to energy poverty. And this is because of the difference in so-called poverty of infrastructure, for example, lack of infrastructure and lack of adequate built environment and housing. And also because of a difference in how material deprivation is spread between different countries in Europe. Also, how are energy systems built? Are they more competitive or there is a more monopolistic uh, structure? And of course, even difference whether we talk about post-socialistic countries or all democracies. And also there is definitely this correlation between vulnerable spaces and location of vulnerable population. For example, low-income or minorities live in suburban parts of the cities or in rural areas, but it's not just that it's about geography. Well, it is about geography, but it's also about the policies and the processes who kind of cement all of these existing geographies in a way that is it also in all countries that we talked about with all these different spatial variations? Are citizens treated fairly? in their attempt to have warm home and using modern technology and fuels? Do they get support from the state? Or if they protest on the streets against high increasing energy prices, are they heard and understood? And also even where do energy protests happen? We could see that it happened in Bulgaria and even a few years back it managed to kind of turn the government. 
So in that sense, let's talk about heating, which is one of the things that is a result or like a singularity that defines some of these countries that you mentioned. Maybe we could discuss energy needs, like in the context of heating. What are the consequences of, in the long term, not having these needs met? We can talk about it in terms of perpetuation of poverty, poor health conditions in the longer term, or environmental degradation. Indeed, so heating is not just a very simple energy service. It touches upon many other relevant ones, as you mentioned. And also, it's not just about the heating as a service, but also what kind of source and technology will be used. And exposure, for example, to cold indoor temperature can have negative health impacts, but also exposure to polluting fuels, such as fuel wood, can lead to indoor pollution and will have additional health implications. And also the size of the dwelling that's being heated can have effects also on the mental well-being and even privacy. So imagine that it's not an exception that it happens a six-person household spends all their days for three months in one heated room. It's a reality for households in Western Balkans, if I may boldly generalize. And if my research, I've noticed that there is also a tension between being able to pay the energy bills and stay warm. So in some cases, in the presence of children, the need to have a warm home would prevail. But in other cases, the fear of not being able to pay the energy bills and get disconnected as a result of not paying would prevail. So it has a mental toll on the Householders. And heating is also one of the central needs um, in the households in winter on the count of other basic needs, such as food, which means that households give, in order to have a warm home, they would ration food or they would maybe get cheaper food. So they would really explore this flexible food market. And uh, for households in din deprivation, anything else other than the basic needs, for example, things like vacation or going to the cinema is a luxury. And which means that this energy deprivation or living on the minimum leads to other types of deprivation, such as cultural deprivation and even socialization. For example, some households are not comfortable to receive guests because they don't have a warm home or they would not go out with friends often because they would need to spend money on coffee or drinks. And also the source of heating can have a huge environmental impact. For example, in cities where fuel wood is widely used for heating, such as Skopje, the capital of North Macedonia, there is um, outdoor pollution in winter. And also in some cases, uh, even their attempts to get citizens involved in illegal wood cutting, just because they cannot even afford the cheap fuel wood. And this extensive use of fuel wood leads to deforestation and then further on leads to urban floods. And fuel woods is also has some benefits for energy vulnerable households for a set of reasons. It is a fuel that households have control over, gives them control over the time and intensity of heating, which is contrasted to, to some type of district um, heating in post-socialistic country contexts, also in Hungary, for example, in North Macedonia, where users do not have full control over the heating. And as a result of that, they don't have a full control over their district heating bill. And with fuel wood, that's not the case. And it also can be a safe haven in times of high electricity prices, such as now, and then it can be used to replace or to reduce electricity costs and replace even other energy services, such as hot water or cooking. Thank you for expanding on this. 
Actually, I wanted to further go on and talk about Western Balkans in the case of North Macedonia, which is your country. But then we can also talk about Albania, which is actually where I'm from. Could we maybe touch on the ongoing development of hydropower in the Western Balkans and its effects on longer term energy poverty? So hydro is one of the domestic solutions, right, to replace coal along with other renewables. So this is kind of a the source that Western Balkans countries have. Of course, Albania doesn't have coal and it's maybe even lacking in that way. But it's generally Western Balkans, the hydropower is a potential source of increasing the domestic production of energy. And in cases that there is coal, avoiding coal or reducing the use of coal. However, it can have an environmental implication. So if it's hydro, so there's a debate, is it hydro renewable or not? Because of the potential environmental implications. For example, in the National Park Mavrovon in North Macedonia, so there was a plan to build a um, hydropower plant, a dam, and that would have actually, would have been on a way of the Balkan lynx, which is a dangerous species. And it would endanger the species, and it's also kind of in the middle of a national park. So it is really important where we build hydropower plants and what are kind of the all environmental implications. And if I can kind of bring the topic back to energy poverty, for energy poverty point of view, it's not only the question about energy supply source, but it's about the spatial distribution and democratization. So maybe that's more easier to conceive with the solar. Because one simple thing that governments in the Western Balkans can do, and they've not done, is to allow natural persons, for example, citizens, to use photovoltaics and become prosumers. So you can produce your own electricity from photovoltaics and also sell even the access to the grid. Yeah, this is the case in Albania as well. We have uh, started regulating the market, let's say, of like home produced electric energy. I'm also glad you mentioned the struggle to keep some hydropower plants from now developing in protected zones and uh, also the endangered species of lynx. I've, I've been engaged in some NGOs actually that have worked with that. So that's the reason why I wanted to ask about this. Could we then speak about the role of institutions in creating and practicing or enforcing policies that are relevant to energy poverty in the European context? Also, specifically, could we talk about who an ombudsman would be in the context of energy justice? What would be their role? I've picked up on the ombudsman quite, not to say by chance, the ombudsman as an institution is relevant for energy poverty. I was actually also involved in some research for kind of a point of view of an NGO in which we are always interested in writing what kind of are the good governance qualities of institutions. And actually, I realized that the Macedonian Ombudsman has a very good, very rich annual reports in which they really have a very good grasp of all issues. And it's not only kind of a typical human rights issues, but it's also social rights. It's very extensive. And I really found as surprisingly as a very good source of how the ombudsman can understand energy poverty or energy justice. And by that also making the questions, how as a role institutions can have something to do or to help or to expose energy injustices. 
the Macedonian Ombudsman really does this very boldly, very explicitly. And it has mentioned many times that monopolies misuse their position. And when they disconnect citizens from energy services without even considering their material status, and there is no retribution for citizens, if the monopolies breach citizens' consumer rights, even human rights, there is no retribution. There was interesting examples of having whole regions being remotely disconnected from electricity and not all of the citizens disconnected were actually non-payers. So they did like this remote bigger region disconnection because if they went to the region and they disconnect one by one, they were afraid of being attacked. And this is really explicitly mentioned in the annual reports. So they disconnected as a result of that also citizens who pay their energy bills. And there has been no retribution for the citizens that even pay their bills. But also the ombudsman really questions that, hey, look, these people that you are disconnecting now and they cannot pay their energy bills, it's not because they forgot. It's not because they do not want to. Is because they really can't. So you just have to take into consideration their social and human dimension. And it's kind of a bringing this aspect into the energy systems discussions. And more broadly about what kind of institutions there are and can do something about energy poverty policies. So it's also like the social welfare system. If it's weak, it can really not help or it can keep citizens in material deprivation. Also monopolies who breach not only consumer and human rights too. So they were doing this and we kind of accepted that this is the system that we have built up and we try not to think how this system actually co-creates energy poverty. Thank you for expanding on that. I think you also have touched upon some of the energy efficiency measures that we can take to mitigating energy poverty, especially in the scale of households, because low energy efficiency in housing is like one of the main factors that lead to energy poverty, as you mentioned. Are there some counterpoints that we could mention in addressing energy poverty issues? So I have mixed feelings about energy efficiency, solving energy poverty. So I have to say this has been like the mainstream solution many years now. And even now it's not too dominant, but it has been definitely several years ago that energy poverty is a problem that can be technologically fixed. So definitely investing in energy efficiency or making sure that dwellings are of good quality and that you do not need that much energy to heat, of course, is the logic of it. However, there is this not known problem that energy poor households underspend energy. So they're really even using less than some kind of an average citizen would use. And this actually makes quite problem. For example, when I was doing my field work, and actually this topic came from three stakeholders about the, the city of Kichevo when there was the idea to make a district heating that would be on biomass, if I remember correctly. So district heating system that would connect first the schools or so the public uh, local institutions and then to offer it to the citizens. And um, the engineers that were involved with this were from abroad and they actually needed, of course, all the data, all the energy uses, the cost and everything. And even for the schools and even for the citizens, they thought there was some kind of a mistakes in the calculations because the numbers were so low and the people were spending so little energy, like heating one room or heating nuts 24-7 during winter, that they actually could not make the model work, that totally the idea was not profitable. 
but talking about what are different other approaches to solving or at least alleviating energy poverty or preventing is definite inclusion of local actors, for example, municipalities to have this kind of approach. So if we said this example that I've mentioned that was totally financial fail, but if you, in this cost-benefit analysis, you do not just bring the efficiency or the financial aspect, you bring aspects of equity, for example, that with this maybe you would increase the quality of life of citizens and then you would maybe take ex citizens out of energy poverty and so on and also maybe reduce health impacts so on then i think the math would be quite different and of course it's always a question when if it's a private company maybe they cannot take the cost but then here the municipalities or other social institutions could or should be able to take this kind of uh, investment and it's also about not leaving citizens alone like in a sense that okay you do your own thing or you renovate or not innovate that's your own thing but involve them and offer some kind of a solution for example they would be project to reimburse the whole building and this is how much the municipality participates this is how much the citizens can participate these are the costs so just kind of offer some kind of a more a systematic approach. And it's also about the good governance of the system, definitely. So do we have a strong maybe energy focus on the ombudsman? Do we have a strong welfare system? Are institutions transparent? So is there maybe ways of more greater decentralization of energy supply and even more energy democracy? And of course, even kind of a more energy citizenship, which I love this word is really about that citizens are so complex. They're not just pairs of energy bills. They're not just consumers, but they're also people with different agencies and they should be considered as such in the whole search of finding solution for energy poverty. Thank you so much for sharing all this insight. I wanted to ask, how can we make sure that we have a just energy transition to like new systems? And uh, thank you for explaining that. I would also like to mention that there is like a similar scheme in Tirana where the municipality is paying for half of building the new energy sufficient facade for public buildings and the citizens have to like pay for half. And of course, there is an issue of possibilities there, like not all of the families can pay and then the other families in the building find themselves having some conflicts within this. But it's also a good initiative, I would say. Maybe then we can go on and talk more about the scientific aspect of your research and your personal journey. So you use a mix of qualitative and quantitative methods in your work and, of course, research on the experience of energy poor. Could you tell us more about the limitations? Have you seen only quantitative analysis that sometimes forget the human aspect? I know you, you spoke a lot of the human component of this especially in the context of Eastern Europe and Western Balkans that we spoke about, but also what could be the importance and role of social sciences in addressing these major challenges like universal access to clean energy? Like what's the role of data, let's say, in solving this? Exactly. So when you mentioned the need of data, we definitely need of data and there's different type of data, right? Quantitative, we can also take up from statistics, but this qualitative data is usually done by interviewing households. And that's, I have to say, can be quite hard thing or also time consuming. 
So I believe that definitely by doing this hard part or actually talking to how schools affected by energy poverty really enriched my understanding of their issues. And it's very interesting that you start talking to them and you kind of think, oh, I'm talking about the heating, how you use the energy sources in your home. And you think it's like a quite a objective topic you talk about, but then you end up listening to their life stories. It's like very private even going into their private life. And I actually have to say up to a year after I finished the interviews, I was quite overwhelmed. And I just didn't know how to process that and put it into science or to put it on paper in my chapters. I believe that the mix of methods is always good. It improves the validity of findings. And with the quantitative, with the regression analysis, I did, they pointed out to which are the variables which predict more energy poverty. But then with the interviews, I was able to understand more the context and the questions, how and why. And I believe that it all ends up to a much richer experience and lots of findings that were quite interesting for my thesis. And definitely social sciences, it's really about understanding the human aspect and kind of in all the stories, it's definitely there are people with needs, people with stories, and it's quite complex, then if you want to put that or simplify it in a number, do some kind of analysis, we would lose part of it. But then it also makes the solutions quite difficult to reach because of the complexity of human nature. But I don't think it's impossible. I think it's just a way of rethinking. So the example that I've made, so if we do really this cost-benefit analysis, if we only take the numbers, or the profitability, financial profitability, then we really have not tried to rethink our society and we've not allowed everyone to strive. But if we think that, look, we would somehow calculate or quantify the health implications or quality of life that we would give to citizens, then I think the math would be quite different. So it's not impossible. And it's really also about what I've understood, especially to the qualitative analysis or the qualitative type of data was all these kind of a power relations. And I believe that power relations between the individual versus the state. And I think this was something maybe a bit more typical for socialistic countries and that we have this balanced power relations. So we have all the burden that is put on the individual who are harshly punished for if you don't pay one energy bill, you're disconnected, well, companies and governments don't do anything, they don't pay any fuels, that there's no retribution from their side, and there is even criminality of energy poverty. So there was a recently a law that was passed well, a few years back in North Macedonia about stealing, uh, criminalization of energy. So if you steal energy, then if you're an individual, you can go to jail, but if you're a company, you can just pay a fee. And really people who still or who were in a position to steal energy, I don't think they do it just because they do not want to pay. It's really out of necessities. It can get into quite a bit more understanding of the dependencies and the lock-ins and kind of the whole this system and context that enhances energy poverty. Thank you, Anna, for sharing such important insight. And actually, it's really something that affects people's daily lives. And also, I agree, it's such a complex situation. And the human factor needs to be, of course, taken into consideration when studying these things and suggesting policies to solve them. Maybe we have some time left to discuss about the difference between rural and urban communities. In cases where 
cities or in urban areas, such as like the capital of Skopje, there is only 10% district heating. Like in the whole country, there is only 10% district heating. It's only based in the capital city. So it's basically 90% have to use some other fuel. So you can live in poverty of infrastructure, even in non-rural areas. So there is, in some cases, there is not so much difference in the way of infrastructure is set up. Generally, in rural areas, life is cheaper. And basically, citizens, maybe if they don't have so much of income in cash, let's say they have maybe their own local production of food or kind of uh, they work on the field in agriculture. So their needs are kind of satisfied for food, maybe locally. And there is not big expenditures as maybe need to go to university and so on. And also in rural areas, usually more vulnerable or at least more low income households are living. But just mentioned that maybe slow income on paper or at least the amount of income they receive, but not necessarily in their deprivation. They, they might have local food and involved in agriculture and be well off. But definitely the city's life is more expensive and also citizens there are more exposed to air pollution. It's kind of the consequence of energy poverty and they're more exposed to air pollution, which also has some share of that outcome due to this very intensive air pollution. One ongoing research that uh, me and my colleagues are working on, we have shown that even uh, by 2050, the heating degree days would, in absolute terms, they would uh, stay higher in rural areas. So the need to heat would be higher in rural areas than urban areas, which then in the long term can make these rural areas more vulnerable. But it's really different from country to country, region to region. There's some, for example, countries that social housing is available not only in urban, but also in rural areas. And this can also mitigate the energy poverty issue. So there is not a clear cut and both regions have their own pros and cons, but I would assume rural communities are more kind of exposed and detached, at least to maybe some potential systematic solutions to solving energy poverty. Thank you so much, Anna, for your knowledge and insights, but also I'm very thankful because this is a valuable insight on the work of an urban planner as well. With this, I would like to thank Shazad for having us here. Thank you, Ray, for the great interview, for the exciting questions. Thank you, Shaksat, for inviting me and for the opportunity to talk about my research and my findings on your podcast. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Anna Stoyolovska, and our interviewer, Ray Kochi, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.